Chapter Seven, A Night's Vigil. Banny, she was looking pretty sober, and she sighed some now and then, but pretty soon she got to asking about Mary and Sid and Tom's aunt Polly, and then Aunt Sally's clouds cleared off, and she got in a good humor and joined in on the questions and was her lovingest best self, and so the rest of the supper went along gay and pleasant. But the old man he didn't take any hand hardly, and was absent-minded and restless and done a considerable amount of sighing. And it was kind of heartbreaking to see him so sad and troubled and worried. By and by, a spell after supper, come a nigger and knocked on the door and put his head in with his old straw hat in his hand, bowing and scraping, and said his Mars Brace was out at the stile and wanted his brother and was getting tired waiting supper for him, and would Mars Silas please tell him where he was? I, I never see Uncle Silas speak up so sharp and fractious before. He says. Am I his brother's keeper? And then he kind of wilted together and looked like he wished he hadn't spoken so. And then he says very gentle, "But you needn't say that, Billy. I was took sudden and irritable, and I ain't very well these days and not hardly responsible. Tell him he ain't here." And when the nigger was gone, he got up and walked the floor backwards and forwards, mumbling and muttering to himself and plowing his hands through his hair. It was real pitiful to see him. Aunt Sally, she whispered to us and told us not to take notice of him. It embarrassed him. She said he was always thinking and thinking since these troubles come on, and she allowed he didn't mourn about half know what he was about when the thinking spells was on him, and she said he walked in his sleep considerable more now than he used to, and sometimes wandered around over the house and even outdoors in his sleep. And if we catched him at it, we must let him alone and not disturb him. She said she reckoned it didn't do no harm, and maybe it done him good. She said Benny was the only one that was much help to him these days. Said Benny appeared to know just when to try to soothe him and when to leave him alone. So he kept on tramping up and down the floor and muttering till by and by he begun to look pretty tired. Then Benny, she went and snuggled up to his side and put one hand in his and one arm around his waist and walked with him, and he smiled down on her and reached down and kissed her, and so, little by little, the trouble went out of his face and she persuaded him off to his room. They had very petting ways together and it was uncommon pretty to see. Aunt Sally, she was busy getting the children ready for bed, so by and by it got dull and tedious, and me and Tom took a turn in the moonlight and fetched up in the watermelon patch and et one, and had a good deal of talk. And Tom said he'd bet the quarrelin' was all Jupiter's fault, and he was going to be on hand the first time he got a chance and see. And if it was so, he was going to do his level best to get Uncle Silas to turn him off. And so we talked and smoked and stuffed watermelons much as two hours, and then it was pretty late. And when we got back, the house was quiet and dark, and everybody gone to bed. Tom he always seen everything, and now he see that the old green baize work gown was gone, and said it wasn't gone when he went out. So he allowed it was curious, and then we went up to bed. We could hear Benny stirring round in her room, which was next yarn, and judged. She was worried a good deal about her father and couldn't sleep. We found we couldn't either, so we sat up a long time and smoked and talked in a low voice and felt pretty dull and downhearted. We talked the murder and the ghost over and over again and got so creepy and crawly we couldn't get sleepy nohow and no way. 
by and by, when it was away late in the night, and all the sounds was late sounds and solemn, Tom nudged me and whispers to me to look, and I done it, and there we see a man poking around in the yard like he didn't know just what he wanted to do, but it was pretty dim and we couldn't see him good. Then he started for the stile, and as he went over it the moon came out strong, and he had a long-handled shovel over his shoulder, and we see the white patch on the old work-gown. So Tom says, "'He's a-walkin' in his sleep. I wish we was allowed to follow him and see where he's going to. There, he's turned down by the tobacco-field. Out of sight now. It's a dreadful pity he can't rest no better.' We waited a long time, but he didn't come back any more, or if he did he come around the other way, so at last we was tuckered out and went to sleep and had nightmares, a million of them. But before dawn we was awake again, because meantime a storm had come up and been raging, and the thunder and lightning was awful, and the wind was a-thrashing the trees around, and the rain was driving down in slanting sheets, and the gullies was running rivers. Tom says, "'Looky here, Huck, I'll tell you one thing that's mighty curious.' Up to the time we went out last night the family hadn't heard about Jake Dunlap being murdered. Now, the men that chased Hal Clayton and Bud Dixon away would spread the thing around in half an hour, and every neighbor that heard it would shin out and fly around from one farm to other and try to be the first to tell the news. Land, they don't have such a big thing as that to tell twice in thirty year. Huck, it's mighty strange. I don't understand it. So then he was in a fidget for the rain to let up, so we could turn out and run across some of the people and see if they would say anything about it to us. And he said, if they did, we must be horribly surprised and shocked. We was out and gone the minute the rain stopped. It was just broad day then. We loafed along up the road, and now and then met a person and stopped and said howdy, and told them when we come, and how we left the folks at home, and how long we was going to stay, and all that. Uh, but none of them said a word about that thing, which was just astonishing and no mistake. Tom said he believed if we went to the sycamores we would find that body laying there solitary and alone, and not a soul around. Said he believed the men chased the thieves so far into the woods that the thieves probably seen a good chance and turned on them at last, and maybe they all killed each other, and so there wasn't anybody left to tell. First we knowed, gabbling along that way, we was right at the sycamores. The cold chills trickled down my back, and I wouldn't budge another step for all Tom's persuading. But he couldn't hold in. He'd got to see if the boots was safe on that body yet. So he crope in, and the next minute out he comes again with his eyes bulging. He was so excited and says, "'Huck, it's gone!' I was astonished. I says, "'Tom, you don't mean it. It's gone, sure.' There ain't a sign of it. The ground is trampled some, but if there was any blood it's all washed away by the storm, for it's all puddles and slush in there. At last I gave in and went and took a look myself, and it was just as Tom said, there wasn't a sign of a corpse. Dern it, I says, the diamonds is gone. Don't you reckon the thieves slunk back and lugged him off, Tom? Looks like it. It just does. Now, where'd they hide him, do you reckon? I don't know, I says, disgusted. And what's more, I don't care. They've got the boots, and that's all I cared about. He'll lay around these woods a long time before I hunt him up. Tom didn't feel no more interest in him neither, only curiosity to know what come of him. But he said we'd lay low and keep dark, and it wouldn't be long till the dogs or somebody rousted him out. We went back home to breakfast, ever so bothered and put out and disappointed and swindled. I weren't ever so down on a corpse before. 
End of chapter 7